It's a, a very exciting, special night for me. Uh, the last time Frank was here, I wasn't here, so I get to be here with you. Uh, Frank Ostaseski, we're on first name basis, so it's Frank from here on in, because I don't say the last name well, but when I, I first heard about Frank, this is, uh, he's the founder of the Zen Hospice, I remember thinking to myself that if I was doing a parallel life, I would love to train in and go that route, the depth of being and the mystery at the edge of life. That would be a route I'd want, and I didn't, so I, I, I dip in from different directions. Frank is a pioneer in bringing uh, really contemplative caregiving to the dying and, and training caregivers in giving in being with the dying. And also in, in more recent incarnation with the uh, Meta Institute uh, that he founded, I don't know, how many years back was that? About? In 2005. 2005, yeah. doing a tremendous number of trainings and workshops uh, for people that are interested in caregiving. And he'll tell you about the most exciting, most recent uh, offering at, towards the end of the evening. But I just want to, on behalf of all of us, thank you no, for being here. Oh, no, thank you yeah. for having me. Yeah. I'm very happy to be with you. Yeah. So our format tonight is that um, Frank's going to basically share about some, some of what he's into. I'm just going to ask a few leading questions, but take it wherever <laughs> you want to go, okay? okay? All right. <laughs> we'll have fun together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I, I was kind of interested myself, if you wouldn't mind starting on a more personal note with how it happened that you mm. took this, this track in life, that this became your passion? Mm. Well, um, there's a kind of elevator speech for that, but we're not in an elevator. <laughs> Tagore actually had a beautiful um, short story that I remember reading about children who walked from village to village. And... Um, when they walked barefoot, the, the uh, paths were always curving and meandering. And then they got shoes and the paths became very straight. Yeah? I meandered for a long time. I think my own parents dying young was probably a big impact. And honestly, you know, my own pain. You know, there, there comes a point in our lives, as you know so well, that you know, we, we stop and we turn toward our pain and that becomes the ground for compassion, yeah? And then um, that's the only thing that makes sense anymore, yeah? So um, I worked in refugee camps a lot. And then in San Francisco, it was ground zero for the AIDS epidemic. And um, none of us really knew what we were doing. We were making it up as we went along, really. But um, it was an honest time. You know, the, the eyes of a dying patient, they're the clearest mirrors I've ever looked into. And in their gaze, there's no place to hide. And so being with dying has shown me myself in ways that I couldn't have imagined before, actually. So I feel very grateful that my life took this turn. I don't exactly know why it took this turn, but I, I'm very grateful that it did, yeah. You, um, I've been reading just recently some of the things that you put out and one of the things that most seemed to kind of wrap around the teachings of how you talk about being with the dying, the precepts you give felt like a really beautiful, that could be like 10 Dharma talks, I yeah, know. Yeah. But if there's any way just to kind of bring us all in on that, yeah. maybe. Well. First of all, when I, when I started Zen Hospice, it started with a very simple idea. And that was that there seemed to me to be a natural match between people who were cultivating what we might call the listening mind or the listening heart in meditation practice, and those people that needed to be heard really well, at least once in their lives, uh, people who were dying. In our case, mostly people who were living on the streets of San Francisco. So I didn't really have much of an idea beyond that, to be honest. We just started taking people in and caring for them. Uh, I changed diapers on park benches behind City Hall and uh, taught prostitutes and um, desk clerks how to take care of the people in their SRO hotels, you know. And along the way, 
dying people showed me what was most important. So I, I, don't, I give them all the credit, first of all, yeah, because they, they're my teachers. And it's good to have your teachers in the room with you. It keeps you honest. Yeah. So, um, yeah, a while back, um, I was flying out to um, be with Bill Moyers, who was doing a big show. And he asked me if I could help train his staff, cameramen and producers, etc. And so on the airplane, I tried to write down five salient things that dying people had told me. You know how that goes? You've done that, yeah. And the first was, uh, welcome everything, push away nothing. Yeah. How do we do that? You know? Um, I don't think that means we have to like everything that comes. We just have to be willing to meet it. Yeah? But we can't just meet it as a personality either. So we have to discover in ourselves something that's capable of that kind of welcoming. And the second was um, bring your whole self to the experience. You know, we often think that what will serve is our expertise or our strength or something along these lines, but really what serves often as a meeting place is our weakness, our helplessness, you know, our, our um, fear. When we bring our whole self to the experience, we bring not just our strength, but also all of these other qualities of being human. Um, the third precept is my favorite. It says, don't wait. You know, waiting is full of expectation. Waiting for the next moment to arrive, we miss this one. Uh, I cannot tell you how many people I've been with, families of dying people who say to me, when is he going to die? And waiting for the moment of dying, they miss everything that's here. So, so waiting is full of expectation. And I'm not suggesting some kind of urgency here. I just mean, Suzuki Roshi spoke about it beautifully. He spoke about it not as patience, but as constancy. A constant contact with our experience. And the fourth precept was find a place of rest right in the middle of things. We often think that rest will come when, oh, we go on a retreat or we go on a holiday or when our lists get checked off, you know, but my list never gets checked off, especially with my email account, you know. <laughs> so I have to find a way of resting right in the middle of what I'm doing, like right now. Yeah? And I find that that rest comes from bringing my attention carefully and um, heartfully to what's actually happening. Yeah? You know how it is when you do that, when you're absorbed in a book you're reading and you feel refreshed by it? Yeah? So find a place of rest right in the middle of things. And the final one is um, cultivate don't know mind. I felt obliged to put something kind of Zen-like in the list. Yeah. So to cultivate don't know mind is um, to really cultivate a mind that's full of wonder and awe and curiosity. Yes. Like, can you really be that curious about your next breath, or is it boring? You know. Is it boring just because that's the attitude you're bringing to it? So, can we really have an open mind? You know, Suzuki Roshi famously spoke of beginner's mind, you know. There's a corollary teaching in Zen, uh, Dogen um, said, not knowing is nearest, or it's often translated, not knowing is most intimate. And he was speaking actually about awakening, but we could also understand this, um, that when we don't know something, we have to stay very close to it in order to understand it. You know, like you go into a room where you don't have a light, you know, and you feel your way along the wall, you know. One of my teachers used to say, uh, we, we use the Braille method. Yeah, we, we find our way along through life that way. We feel our way through life, yeah. So to, to cultivate not knowing is to bring this kind of openness and wonder, I think, to, uh, to our lives and to our encounters, yeah, our relationships. So this is what dying people told me. I, they, they showed me that this was what was most important. Yeah.
I'm not being humble. I mean it quite honestly that I didn't have a clue about what I was doing when we started. We, we didn't know. I trained about 12 people, you know, and there were Zen students who were kind of anxious to be around dying people because they heard that was really important to do. But then I would find someone on the street or in San Francisco General Hospital and I would bring them home to Zen Center and move them into one of the students' rooms and we would just figure it out, you know. And they showed us what to do. So even to this day, you know, when someone says, well, what should I do when my mother's dying? I say, I don't know. But your mother knows, you know. And if you trust her, she'll show you the way, you know. So, um, you know, I feel very grateful that I have had such good teachers in my life. Such extraordinary teachers, yeah. I'll say one more thing, and that is that I don't think it's any more important than anything else. I don't think caring for the dying is any more important than taking care of your children or working in your gardens or practicing the Dharma. It just is what, you know, called me. Now, it is very difficult to walk into a room where someone is dying and not pay attention. I mean, it galvanizes your attention into this present moment, yeah? But, you know, we can bring that kind of attention to anything we do. Yeah. It's just what called to me, and uh, I'm glad it did. Yeah. <laughs> you know, as I listen to those precepts, they, um, a, they're a path for everything. I mean, that's, mm. that's for living and dying, and that, every, you know, every part of living has loss and change, so it goes for everything. And as you were speaking, I was thinking, I was thinking of the don't-know mind and realizing how it sounds so good, wonder. I mean, I love the idea of wonder. Yeah. And yet I know for myself, as soon as stress hits, um, and the bigger the stress, the more there's a kind of controlling and wanting to figure out and tighten, yeah. and so the valve kind of closes. Mm. I definitely watched that when I got really sick and I didn't know what was going to happen and everything in me wanted to control and figure out and, and so on. And you, just not so far mm in the far past went through a major one and I was wondering if you could talk about what you learned and mm. what was challenging and what mm. came through of, with your heart attacks. Yes, um, Tara's referring to the fact that I had a very serious heart attack and then triple bypass surgery, urgent, emergent, triple bypass surgery. I was actually in the middle of teaching a retreat on compassion for a bunch of doctors and nurses. That heart stuff gets you in trouble, doesn't yeah. it? And actually, I'll tell you the truth. The morning of the heart attacks, I began to feel pain in my chest. And I completely denied it. I had my assistant, happens to be a hospice nurse, and she said, Frank, you should pay attention to this. And I said, no, I think it's just, it feels a bit like indigestion. Just give me some antacids, I'll be fine. And then I was sitting in practice, as we were just doing, and I could feel this wave of pain coming through me, and I thought, oh, sensation, sensation, you know. <laughs> Twice. The third time I was walking down the road to um, this room where we were going to have a, I was having a video conference with Ramdas actually. And again, this pain came. And I was like Peter and Christ, you know, denying Christ three times, you know. So arrogant. We can be so arrogant. I can be so arrogant. But in the middle of a dialogue with Ramdas, I began to get irritable. And I, it reminded me of my son's mother when she was giving birth. And I made a suggestion to her and she snapped at me. And I said under my breath to Ramdas, you're talking too much. You're going on and on, you know, just shut up, you know. And I thought, oh, something must be happening. So I said, Ramdas, please excuse me, I have to go now. And they took me to the hospital and in the emergency room I had a heart attack. It was very humbling. It was so humbling. I mean, I used to think I knew something about dying, and now I don't know very much about it at all. I was very lucky. I had people around me who loved me, soul friends, you know. And, um, and they took exquisite care of me. I was not able to take care of myself. And um, there was a tremendous vulnerability 
as you probably understand through your own illness. And at first, this, this vulnerability, for me at least, was experienced as dependency and helplessness and um, absence of control. But gradually, over the weeks of healing and months of healing, it became something more like porousness or transparency, yeah? where there weren't so many veils between myself and the others. Um, I was very fortunate to be well-loved. I had people around me, and I had very kind people all over the country who were putting my names on altars and doing practice for me. And, and this was stunning. And it was so powerful that I couldn't deny that it was true. But it wasn't the most extraordinary thing. The most extraordinary thing was discovering the love of my own being for me. It was, of course, a love I was familiar with, but I became much more intimate with it. And uh, that love opened me to a certain kind of trust. Not a trust in others' behavior, although I had trustworthy people around me. It was really a kind of trusting in the unfolding of things. Yeah? All the things that we imagine we're in charge of. Yeah? And that, un that trust became an abiding trust. And even though I had practiced for 30 years, I'd never known trust quite like that. And that trust opened to something else. And it was a deep rest. A real true rest. Mind at rest, heart at rest, consciousness at rest. My whole being at rest. And a certain kind of seeking, even a very subtle seeking, just stopped. And um, so this was what was incredibly remarkable about this experience was the humility that it brought forward, the love, the trust, and the rest that it opened in my life. Yeah. You know, the night before my surgery, my son came to be with me. I love him beyond words. And cheering me up, he decided to get a film that he thought would be a good idea for us to watch a video. So he got the bucket list. Yeah. <laughs> Which we watched for about 15 minutes and then put it away. And we fell into a very beautiful conversation together. And I, as I say, I really love him. And, um, and in the middle of this very heartful conversation, he turned to me and he said, Dad, are you going to live through this? And, you know, a lot of you are parents in the room, I'm sure, and, you know, of course we want to reassure our children. And so I started to do that, and I started to say, oh, don't worry, it'll be fine. But out of my mouth, I heard myself say, I'm not taking sides. And it was so surprising to me, actually, but also absolutely truthful. I, didn't, I wasn't trying to be a good Buddhist, you know. It wasn't a you know, great thing to say. But it was absolutely truthful. And partly because it was so truthful, it was reassuring to both him and I. Both of us. Both of us. I wasn't taking sides. And I, and I, I really give all the credit for that to my teachers, to, my, to the people who have allowed me the great, honor of being with them in their most vulnerable moments. Yeah. And so um, and they were with me all through the surgery and, and the months, months and months of healing. I'd have dreams every night, you know. And it was sometimes it was just remembering something. Other times I felt like I was being visited, you know. Sometimes people I'd worked with, I'd worked with a thousand people or more, you know. They, um, they'd come and give me advice, you know. Or they'd just come keep me company. You know, turn my life upside down, upside down. Like it's like going to India, getting a heart attack. You know, 
It's a beautiful, horrible thing, going to India or having a heart attack, yeah. I'll tell you a funny story. Jack, where I was teaching this retreat was at a Catholic retreat center. All us Buddhists go to Catholic retreat centers for retreats. <laughs> and um, it's called the Santa Sabina Center. You know it. And um, seven months later, I went back to the Santa Sabina Center to do a personal retreat. And so I went, and I was sitting, doing my retreat for a few days by myself, and I began to have heart pain again. And I thought, oh, God. So I called my colleague, who's a therapist, and I said, I think it's in my mind. Don't you think it's in my mind? She said, yeah, it could be, but it could also be in your heart. Go to the hospital. <laughs> so I did. And I came home, and um, I was due to go to Italy to teach with Corrado. And Jack called me, Jack Quinto called me, and he said, Franco, you've got to take it easy. And I said, Jack, I do take it easy. The only time I have heart attacks is when I'm in Catholic retreat centers. <laughs> you know, teaching meditation. Yeah. So he said, for God's sakes, don't go to Italy, it'll kill you. you know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so I didn't go, I canceled the trip. Yeah. Hmm. This is such a precarious world. It's absolutely precarious. You know, and golly, nothing will teach us that, like aging or confronting our own illness. But, you know, the breath is showing us that every moment, isn't it? How precarious it is. Absolutely precarious. And because it's precarious, it's precious. And, you know, because it's, if when we really keep death close at hand, you know, we don't hold on so tightly. We don't take ourselves so seriously and our views are not so important, you know. And I think this engenders in us a certain kind of kindness toward ourselves and, and each other, you know. And um, so that's, that's part of the beauty of it, the vicariousness of this life. It's so precious, you know, you don't want to waste a moment. You want to jump into your life with both feet, you know. And when there's somebody you love, you tell them you love them and you don't wait. You talk for a while. Well, I love what you're saying about love. That the heart attack, I mean, I use the words true refuge, you found true refuge in love. Mm. And, it, and I get that the spiritual path is the don't wait and don't wait for a heart attack to discover the possibility of truly loving this life right here yeah. and letting in love. And I think my inquiry, and I think it's for all of us, is that sometimes the place where we hit a wall is really sen sensing that we can let in love. Mm. And um, mm. I think it, for many of us, when we get sick or when we need to be taken care of, it's very hard to feel like people really do care. Mm. And there's some very old kind of armoring that makes it hard to trust. Mm. So you came out the other side with more trust, this kind of resting, the peace, and the feeling of, of holding yourself. And I'm wondering if you want to speak a little to how in our daily life, when we're not hitting the major wake-ups, mm. we can explore letting it in more and also knowing that as caretakers, those who are taking care of may have a hard time letting it in and yeah. how to be aware of that. Yeah, beautiful. Oh, I don't know. I can talk for a while, but I'm not sure I have any really good answers. Um, you know, honestly, my heart attacks almost destroyed my relationship with Vanda, my partner. It was really hard because I was so in survival mode that I had no room for anything else. You know, it's, it's a narcissistic vacuum when you're sick. And, um, and, and it's important for us to realize that when we're taking care of other people. Um, I needed to be taken care of in a particular way. And um, I was fortunate. I, 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 I chose two people to take care of me. One was this, my assistant, who's a hospice nurse, who I knew understood this. And the second was a guy who I'd helped um, counsel through his lymphoma. And I knew he understood what it was like to be sick. And they were my primary caregivers. But in our day-to-day -day life, you know, um, we don't have to go very far or look very deeply to find 
constant change. Um, you know, get up in the morning, look in the mirror. I used to be blonde. You know? Turn around to the people you love and see that they're in the midst of constant change. You know, one of the things that helped me, Tarek mentioned, called it beautifully, the refuge of love. You know, for me, love is, one of its many characteristics is receptivity. It, it doesn't pick and choose what it loves. Whatever it comes in contact with, it loves. Yeah? So, that great receptivity of love, it allows, it allows for all of it to be included. Our fear and our, our confusion and our demands that life be different than it is. All of that's held, really, in the embrace, the receptivity of love. We, we don't talk enough about love in our Buddhist communities. We speak about loving kindness, and, and I understand why we do that. Because it's easy for love and attachment to get confused. But love isn't all that we are as human beings, but it is fundamentally, essentially, an aspect of who we are. And it has this capacity to meet whatever shows up. Yeah? Whatever shows up. And that's, you know, that's, I think, how I go about it. I, I basically say, I don't know what's going to show up today, but I rest in love. Uh, can I share a story? I had a fellow at the hospice that I loved very much. He was like a grandpa to me. I, I still have his old black cardigan sweater with leather buttons. Yeah? Um, but one day he asked me if I would teach him meditation for his very severe abdominal cancer, for which he had a lot of pain. And he had a morphine pump, you know. And so I said, well, why do you want to learn meditation? You know? He said, oh, I think it's going to help me. I said, okay. So I, I tried to guide his attention, as we might, to the specificity of his experience, to the sensations. And as he started to do that, he just started to scream in pain. He said, oh, it's too much, I can't do it. And I said, okay, let's try something else. I said, let me just put my hands here on your stomach, how's that? And he said, oh, it hurts so much. And I said, okay, let me pull my hands back a little bit, how's that? Oh, it still hurts. I said, okay, how about if I do this, how's that? He said, oh, that's good. And I said, oh, okay. Now, I wasn't doing any California woo-woo stuff, you know, it wasn't no energy healing or anything. It was just suddenly there was room for the pain, yeah? The space around it. Whenever we give space to, it can move, yeah? And uh, I said, well, can you just rest there? And he, out of his mouth, he said, rest in love, rest in love, yeah? And whenever he'd get into trouble from then on, he'd push his morphine pump, you know, when he'd get in pain, he'd push his morphine pump and he would repeat to himself, rest in love, rest in love. I remember the, the day he was dying, actually, his wife came and she was very anxious, you know, and he, and he just, he was on, turned on his side and he just turned to her and he whispered to her and he said, rest in love, rest in love, you know. So, maybe that should just be our primary practice sometimes, you know. Just, Rest there. You couldn't find a more stable place to rest. Yeah. <laughs> so maybe I'll share a love story because what you made me think of is um, Mary Oliver's line, let the soft animal of mm. your body love what you love. Mm. And it seems like so much suffering comes when because we're afraid of uncertainty and because we've been hurt, we block and resist the very thing and the very place that is freedom. And, I, and that happened with a, a, a dear one in our community who had an idea about what it meant to be spiritual and die in a, in a, in a spiritual way. Mm. And she was feeling incredibly um, 
ornery and mundane and, you know, just hating how everything felt and so unspiritual. And she had a very hard time sharing that. So she became completely, com increasingly kind mm. of isolated in some way because mm. she was trying to present a spiritual front. And at one point, um, after a friend had brought some food over, she heard the door close and she was uh, curled up in her bed and she started weeping and she didn't know that the friend was still there so her friend Anna kind of curled around her and held her while she was weeping and that began to to soften it but for her the pathway was when we we would explore together what was going on and the fear is that she just found that if she just said please love me please love me and she'd think of her mother who had died she'd imagine her mother loving her and then she'd ask the trees to love her and then she'd ask her friend Anna, and then she'd ask me, but just the prayer, please love me, mm. was, it's almost like that was the voice of longing that created that porousness, mm. but she needed a way. So it could have been rest in love, but for her it was a, a, a calling on, on mm. love. And I think there's a way in which in the Buddhist tradition we often don't talk about prayer either. Mm. And yet we're always praying. You know, all of us in addition to craving and grasping, we're praying. We, have, we all have that deep part mm. of us that's longing to be, to realize the fullness of what we are. And there, it's a prayer. And, until we are completely inhabiting that freedom, it's a yearning. Mm. And to, so I found that when I'm working with people who are on an edge of any sort, um, in some way helping them to embody and express their prayer is starts to let that homecoming happen. Mm. Um, please love me. Mm. I actually practice it now. You know, when I'm mm. when I'm caught I'll just I'll just say the words please love me and it's at first it feels like a very stuck child place and then it feels like just innocent pure yearning mm. and then there's no longer a, a please love me from some outside. It's just calling on my own mm loving presence. But I, I say often that uh, John O'Donohue put it that prayer is the bridge between longing and belonging. Mm. And there is some way in which when we m create a space that invites that, makes that possible for people, it actually, everybody has completely their own way. Wouldn't even call it prayer sometimes. Um, it's really beautiful healing. So, so what was your prayer through your illness? Was that it? Or was it something else? Please, um, please love me was one of them, but my deep prayer was, may I um, love this life no matter what? Mm. That was one of the early, that was when I first hit a place where um, I had no way of knowing whether I'd ever get better and I was losing, I was, I have a um, connective tissue disease and um, about eight years ago I started, it started, fall, my life started falling apart, I started losing mobility in all sorts of ways and um, so I went from being very athletic to not being able to run and not being able to swim and not being able to do much of anything, including walking on sand. So I couldn't, I love the ocean. Mm. And so it was, I just remember this time of enormous, just cracking apart grieving. And that was the prayer, just may I love this life no matter what, which is still the prayer in a way, just may I be in love with what is, mm -hmm. you know. But in, at that moment it was, may I embrace this, may I embrace, if this body dies, may I embrace that, may I embrace every living, dying part of this universe. Mm. And so it was a prayer for refuge in that way, to realize something large enough that could hold everything. Mm. Mm, beautiful. You know, the organization that I lead now is called the Metta Institute. Metta, usually translated as loving kindness or friendliness, benevolence. And I named it that because I couldn't imagine a quality which was more useful at the bedside, both for the person who was the caregiver and the person in the bed, than the quality of love. But when we're training caregivers, I, I borrow from my friend Joan Halifax, who has a beautiful phrase that caregivers need to learn, I think. And it says, may I offer my love, whether it is accepted, rejected, or met with indifference. May I offer my love whether it is accepted, rejected, or, or, for, or met with indifference. It's beautiful, you know? It's like, there's kind of steadiness in that, isn't there? Stability in that, that we can, that no matter what, we can meet it. 
I mean, I'm not romantic about dying. This is hard work, and it's not easy. There's a labor to dying, and it's hard labor. And, you know, it's not sweetness. Rarely is it sweetness. It's messy. It's really messy. And so it doesn't just call on this quality of um, embracing love. It calls up compassion. And, and thank God it does, because you know, to meet the kind of suffering that we encounter in these situations, you know, it needs a strong ally. That suffering needs a strong ally, and that ally is compassion, you know? You know, I'm, I'm aware when we use the words uh, love, kindness, and compassion, that so huge percentage of the time it's mental or abstract that you have to be very, very embodied mm. to have it be that visceral tenderness and poignancy. And one of the, th- one of the kind of prayers or reflections that helps me that I've been doing every morning recently is just to say, teach me about kindness. Um, to not act as if I know, like to re- like we don't. What is love? I mean, it's like the only way we can realize it is to start absolutely fresh, like we've never had any notion of it in our whole lives. In this moment, say, what does it mean this moment to love this life right here? So when I do this prayer of just please teach me about kindness, um, it's it has that kind of innocence that I just. I really don't know. Yeah. And then fresh in each situation. Which leads me to a question I want to ask you about kindness and compassion in a particular situation. Is I have know many, many people right now whose parents have Alzheimer's. Mm. And, and it brings up, when you say not messy, not pretty, it, it's so difficult for them. And I'm wondering if you might speak a little to how um, to find their way mm. to that kindness and compassion. This is, this is a big challenge for us now as a culture, as a world. I mean, just this year, Alzheimer's, well, there are th- about 35 million people in the world with Alzheimer's. There are about 34 million people in the world with HIV and AIDS. Those of us that are 60 years old, 1% of us has Alzheimer's at least. 1% of us will have Alzheimer's at least. By the time we turn 70, 10% of us will. By the time we turn 80, 20% of us will. That number is expected to double in the next decade and double again after that. Here's the thing that we forget about Alzheimer's is that it's a disease of the brain. And so, you know, if our spleens weren't working, it wouldn't be nearly as difficult for us. But we tend to identify with our thinking. And we tend to identify others with their thinking. So that when someone is confused, we become confused, often. Yeah? At least that's what I find to be so. We expect people to make sense. Yeah? And so it's very difficult, but absolutely necessary, to continue to see this person as a whole human being, recognizing that this organ is functioning differently now. And that actually helps me a great deal to, to understand that. It's not just a cognitive understanding. To really see, oh, this is not all that they are. This is their, this organ malfunctioning. When my aunt had Alzheimer's, which was complicated by a stroke, and I'd go to see her, she was always very confused, didn't know who I was. She'd take her dress and throw it up over her head, call me by all kinds of names. And one day I got a little um, sassy. And I... She'd lived to 89 years old, never been married. And I said, Mimi, all these years, never been married. Not even a sweetheart? Just like that, into this Alzheimer's vacuous 
And she sat up in her chair and she folded her arms and she said, some questions are too personal to ask. <laughs> and it really reminded me that there's always a whole human being there, even if we can't always um, make contact in the ways that we're accustomed to making contact. So, so for me, one of the things that um, is important when we're caregivers of people is, first of all, to recognize our own limitations. I think that's most important, you know, not to think that we can do it all. It's not possible. Yeah? So you're not anything less if you can't do it all. Um, so to take care of ourselves is essential. Then we have what's needed to take care of others. And then to keep remi reminding yourself that there's a whole human being here. I think this is essential. The, 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 the nature of the disease is that it moves through areas of the brain that control different activities. And depending on where that, what area of the brain has been affected, we'll have totally different manifestations of the disease. I like the practice of saying, just like me. You know the practice? Like, so I say, oh, just like me, this person wants to be happy. Oh, just like me, this person suffers. Oh, just like me, this person wants to awaken. Yeah. And that is actually a helpful practice in working with someone with Alzheimer's. Oh, just like me, this person is confused. Yeah. Oh, just like me, this person is suffering. Just like me, this person wants to be happy. And then I find uh, a way in. Then I find a meeting place. And anything can be a meeting place. Anything. Anger can be a meeting place. Yeah. Um, but we do have to sometimes relinquish our notion about how it's supposed to go. Look, this is why we have four flavors of love. This is why we have loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. One's not enough. <laughs> I was working um, with a young woman who was dying in her early 30s. And her mother and her had had a terrible, terrible relationship. Her mother had been very abusive to her. Horribly so. In all kinds of ways. And uh, the young woman had slipped into a kind of somnolent state where she wasn't speaking. Semi-coma. And in that time, her mother came to visit. And her mother pulled up a chair next to the bed and said to her somnolent daughter, I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And in dozens of different ways, she repeated basically the same thing. I'm so sorry. Please forgive me. And you couldn't help but feel for this mom. And then this young woman, she sat up like a rocket. She hadn't spoken or moved in days. And she sat up like a rocket, straight up in bed. And she looked at her mother and she said, I hate you. I've always hated you. And then she died. There was tremendous suffering in that room. Everybody was suffering, you see? The mom, the young woman, all of us that were bearing witness to this. How do you keep your heart open in that kind of hell, you know? You can't do it as a little personality. You have to feel the strength, the balance of compassion. Yeah? Compassion isn't um, about taking away people's pain. That's a misunderstanding, at least in my experience. Compassion is that capacity which allows us to stay with what we would otherwise love to get away from until the truth, the real causes of that suffering show themselves. That the presence of compassion is such that it allows the defenses to fall down. And when the defenses fall down, we can see the true causes of the suffering, you know. And then we can be of some help. You know, I, I heard in, when I told the story of a sigh in the room, and it's, you know, it's every parent's worst nightmare, right? 
But there was something else there too. And that was the truth. It might have been a hard truth. But I was really glad for this young daughter that she could tell her mother this truth. As hard as it was, and as violent as it felt in that moment, this was also true. Yeah. So equanimity and compassion are what allow us to stay present for what we would otherwise rather turn away from. Yeah. Whether that's in our own life, small little things, you know, or these big challenges that we sometimes that sometimes come into our lives. Frank, when I I was just um, remembering one friend I had who was dying of cancer and said that he didn't want people to relate to him as a guy who's dying of cancer. Hmm. So what you said about Alzheimer's and how to see the whole person Mm -hmm. or to see past the the mask of whatever we're fixating on, the the brain that's going, or it's more than just Alzheimer's with aging. And Mm -hmm. this is a constant conversation, how we, there's some sort of an offense or embarrassment or not okayness about aging. And, um, and, And so to not see somebody as, oh, you're an aged person, just, it's like, respect goes down the tube so often mm. when we become a category. And so it feels like an incredibly beautiful reminder, the just like me reminder, because it, it, it goes ultimately just like me, who you really are is this presence, this awakeness, mm. this tender field of, of loving that's behind mm. it all. And then, not make, then to not make either good or bad it's not good or bad that she said, I'll never, for, you know, I, I've hated you all my life. And to not assign extra meaning because who she is is, is beyond any of that. Not to, taking sides. Not taking, thank you, not taking sides. I rest my case. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah. I, I want to make sure you can share with us because I feel like this leads so beautifully into that um, Heavenly Messenger program because that yes, thank feels you. so much what we're going towards here. Well, first of all, I, I'm very grateful to you for including me tonight. I, I want to say that sincerely. Yeah. You're more than welcome. Thank you. It's nice to feel welcome, isn't it? You know, my partner Vanda, she's British. And they don't use the word welcome. You know, it's not part of the culture. So I had to teach her this. I had to teach her this word. You're welcome. You're really welcome. Yeah. And it's a great thing to be able to do that and to feel on the receiving end of that. You're welcome. You're really welcome. Um, Tara is referencing a program that we're beginning at Spirit Rock in California. And the title is um, The Heavenly Messengers, Awakening Through Illness, Aging, and Death. And you know, most of you, I think, know the story of the Buddha. He was a young prince, Sid Arthur, kind of snuck out of the out of the palace one night and encountered uh, three heavenly messengers, they're often called. They were um, an aging person, a sick person, and a corpse. And also he encountered a fourth messenger, which was a monk, a renunciant, who was, who um, in part uh, inspired the young Siddhartha to follow his, to follow his, um, his quest for enlightenment. So um, Jack Cornfield and I have been talking about a program like this at Spear Rock for many years, and so we've created a multi-year program. It'll be two years, five seven-day retreats, and in between there'll be uh, pod groups, discussion groups with teachers, mentoring by teachers, homework, teleconferences, things that maintain continuity between those, um, those retreats, uh, the residential retreats. And the, the core teachers are myself and James Barres, a good friend of yours, I know, and Sharda Rogel, and also Anna Douglas, who's been doing a lot of wonderful work around aging, Bob Stahl, a wonderful teacher and uh, really someone out in front on the mindfulness, um, secular mindfulness movement, and Angie Stevens, who works with me at the Meta Institute, who's a, who with Ken Wilber and Treo Wilber started the first cancer support communities in the country. So that's the core 
faculty. And then joining us will be uh, guest teachers. Jack will be part of that. Um, Ram Das, Stephen, Andrea Levine, who I saw just a few weeks ago, will be part of that. Um, um, oh, all kinds of wonderful people. But there's two parts to the practice, the two parts to the retreat that I want to show, or the program I want to share with you. The first is, this, is the, this was the fundamental teaching of the Buddha. The study sickness, old age, and death as gateways, doorways to waking up. So the first is, how can we personally go into this exploration and use it, use this encounter with these three messengers as a way to come to the deathless, as a way of coming to awakening? And that's the first dimension of the program, if you will, important dimension. There's a second dimension to it, which I also want to include, which is that uh, we really want to make sure that this exploration is grounded in everyday experience. So it is not philosophical. So we're asking all the people in the program to be doing service during the two years. That service might be that you're taking care of your mother, or it might be that you're a physician working in a hospice program, or you're going down to your local um, nursing home and volunteering some of your time. So that you don't, I don't want to create another Buddhist ghetto. <laughs> I really want this to be show up in people's real everyday lives. So that's part of the program, is to do that service work and then to see, okay, how are you integrating what we're doing in the residential retreats and the other teachings with this experience? And how is this affecting the way in which your own meeting, you're meeting your own death? What are, what are dying people or aging people or sick people showing you? So I think of them as the really important teachers in the program. Finally, there's a, uh, one more piece to it, and that is that my great hope in starting this is that um, people from sanghas like this one, a few people will come with the intention of coming back to this sangha to create here um, a compassionate, companioning group so that when somebody in this sangha is dealing with issues of illness or facing the challenges of aging or perhaps entering active dying, that we have a response. We have a system in place where we can respond to each other. Now that's not to say we're going to provide all the care for that individual, but can you imagine how satisfying and supportive it would be to have someone from your own practice community come and be with you, sit at your bedside, maybe especially if you have a family like mine where they would be a little crazy, you know? You might really welcome somebody from the Sangha coming, yeah? So that's my deep hope, is that in the Sanghas all over the country, people will come back. Not everybody who does the program will do this, but some people will come back and initiate uh, such, an, such a development in your own Sangha. And I'm prepared to offer them a kind of training that will help them do that. It will show them the step-by-step -step process. Of, okay, this is what you could do and these are the pitfalls and this is how you could create such a volunteer organization within, right within your own Sangha. We're hoping to do the same thing at Spirit Rock and we're going to spearhead it in other uh, large Sanghas like this one uh, across the nation. So I really want to um, welcome you <laughs> to join us. And you don't have to be 60 or over. I really want young people to come and join us. It's easy for gray hairs to think that they should do this practice. Please understand, no one escapes these three messengers. So if you're young and you want to know about service um, and you want to deepen your practice, uh, please come. And we have some scholarships also that I really want to make it possible, especially for younger people to come and people of color to come. I really want to make that essential part of this training so it just doesn't become an old white guy's training, you know? And I know, in speaking to Tara, that there might be some encouragement from this Sangha to um, support, help support people uh, who might be willing to come. So, if you're interested in that, I'll stick around a little bit after, uh, after the talk tonight and be happy to visit with you and answer the few questions anyway. But, um, 
You know, the Buddha, there's a great teaching, it says, you know, of all the footprints, the elephant's footprint is the greatest, right? That's the teaching. And um, it said that of all the teachings, the teaching on dying is the greatest. Yeah. So please come uh, join us uh, for those teachings and to share also what you've learned. We're really hoping that those of you who are perhaps working in healthcare or as home health aides or positions, that you'll come play with us and, and help us learn. We, we really don't think that we know how to do this, actually. We, we're really, we want to learn right alongside you. So please um, come play with us, okay? Yeah. So thank you for that little commercial. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, if you're listening and feeling uh, kind of some inspired in that way, um, there's materials in the back, but also you can just email IMCW and Anne will um, get you more information. And we really want to work on this end. IMCW wants to support on this end, whatever, you know, working hand in hand with Frank to really develop if there's a handful of people that want to form a kind of core here to help, help to nourish the caregiving that is possible here in our community. We definitely want to support you. So, mm, thank you. Um, so, Frank, I'm wondering if maybe just to end a short little meta closing mm. for us. Mm -hmm. It seems always most important to begin with ourselves. Often uh, we have the most difficulty offering our love to ourselves, receiving our love for ourselves. So, please, for a moment, uh, just take yourself into your own heart and mind. Sensing into your chest, whole body. And regarding yourself with self-respect. Turning to yourself. Speaking from your own heart and mind, the most essential aspect of your being. saying phrases that I might offer or choosing your own. I like to use, may I be safe, free from all danger. May I be happy and peaceful. May I be filled with loving-kindness from head to toe, suffused in loving-kindness. And may I live with ease, free of struggle and procrastination. So briefly repeating those phrases to yourself taking yourself into your own heart and mind. May I be safe. May I be happy and peaceful. May I be filled with loving kindness. May I live with ease. We'll do one more short round. Choose somebody now who it's very easy for you to feel love for. It might be someone you know personally or perhaps someone you admire like His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. Choose someone who it's very easy for you to feel love so that you can really practice this muscle of love. And calling that person into your own heart and mind calling them by name. Just as I wish to be safe, may you be safe. Just as I wish to be happy and peaceful, may you please be happy and peaceful. 
And just as I wish to be filled with loving kindness, may you also be filled with loving kindness. And just as I would love to live with ease, may you also live with ease, free of all struggle. May all beings know their true nature. May all beings be free of suffering and the causes of suffering. Thank you very much. Again, thank you for oh, being with you. us. Oh, very Namaste. happy to be with you. Bless Namaste. The talk you just listened to has been freely offered. If you'd like to make a donation, learn more about my schedule or about programs offered by the Insight Meditation Community of Washington, please visit either my website, which is tarabrock.com, or IMCW's site, which is imcw.org. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.